1: We spent a whole year last year talking about joy as we read through the Bible, as we learned in this arena and also in our small groups and different classes, what joy is. And we learned last year that joy is not contingent upon our circumstances. Let me say that again. Joy from the Lord as a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23 is not contingent upon your circumstances. So I want to read a passage today in just a moment from the book of Isaiah, where we're actually settling into right now for this Advent season. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. We'll go there in just a moment. If you want to look it up in the Bible, please do so. I challenge you as we challenge the whole congregation every year. Read through the Bible with this. Now, I know this has become a common Bible because you got Bible apps and stuff on there. I like this as a Bible sometimes, but I like something tangible that I can smell and turn the pages up. That's just my preference because I like to highlight and mark in the margins. Yes, you could do that with an electronic Bible. I'm just telling you my preference, all right? But if you know where to turn... Uh, Isaiah is mm, slightly in the middle. If you don't know where to find it, look in the table of contents. We're going to be reading from chapter 9 today. And I'll be reading from a version called the New Living Translation. Okay? It's a little bit easier to read than some of the other versions of Scripture. Okay, so what is joy? Found this great illustration I thought was good that I wanted to share with you today. Ron Crow, who is a pastor, actually gives this as an illustration in one of his messages. He says, During an earthquake some years ago, the inhabitants of this small village were completely in shock. I've never experienced an earthquake except for one time in my life. We went on a mission trip to Guatemala several years ago, and we took our oldest there. She was turning 13, she turned teenager. She turned 12, I just lied. She turned 12 that year. Mariachi band was brought in by my father-in-law, and we just celebrated with birthday cake and stuff there at the compound where the mission was. But while we were there, one morning we woke up and you know, groggy-eyed and all that, and got ready for the morning before we went out on our uh, house building or, or stove building expeditions to the local communities. And we were sitting in this open air breakfast area, and the whole world started to move. Now, yes, the Earth is rotating on its axis at about a thousand miles an hour. That's not what I'm talking about. It was this weird and surreal moment when everything was shifting back and forth and back and forth. And here we are in Guatemala City, surrounding the whole parameter are these active volcanoes. And so this seismic activity is constantly going on there. And what what everybody else was used to, I wasn't. I thought somebody had fallen out of bed. It could have been any number of things. What in the world is going on? It is very intense and it makes you feel completely out of control. So now this earthquake, as I was mentioning a minute ago, hits this small village and everybody was in complete shock, but they were at the same time surprised at the calmness and apparent joy of an old woman that they all knew in the village at length one of them began addressing her asking her aren't you afraid I mean what's wrong with you you're laughing you're singing and our houses are collapsing oh no said the woman she says I'm not afraid I rejoice to know that I have a God who can shake the world the question I have for you this morning are you in the same situation as that lady is In the midst of the world and chaos all around you, are you awestruck by a creator who can shake the world? Our passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 3. We're only going to look at a couple verses today, or three verses today. We talked last week about verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah, and they simply state this in paraphrase, where Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel who are actually doing whatever they want, whenever they want, with whomever they want. They have basically forgotten God. They've begun to worship other types of gods from other types of religions that expect of them and require of them things that would be considered sinful According to Judaism, Yahweh, God, the maker and creator of heaven and earth, never created us to live in ways that are contrary to his purposes for our lives. But this is what his chosen people, Israel, are doing. But In the midst of all of this warning that Isaiah is giving, he gives us chapter 9, and he says, but there's going to come a time after the Lord has has judged you and has taken you into exile by all these pagan nations, there's going to come a time, Zebulun and Naphtali, which are the northern territories next to the Sea of Galilee, there's going to come a time when from this region will come a light to the nations. This region was predominantly Gentile. They were not Jewish. Gentile was anybody anybody who wasn't Jewish. And so for the Jews to hear that a light will come from a predominantly Gentile region would have been shocking, right? But then he goes on, verse 3, and he says, "'You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice.'" They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery. This is the nation of Israel he's talking about. And lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. And you will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. We'll get to that in a minute. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms, blood stained by war, will be burned and they will be fuel for the fire. Now, you're probably asking, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Because I want you to see that as Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel, who's getting ready to be sent off into exile as slaves by the Assyrians, later on by the Babylonians, come under the, uh, the, the oppression of the Medo-Persian Empire, then by the Greeks, then by the Romans, Jesus then will come onto the scene some 700 years after Isaiah writes this prophecy. And what Isaiah is pointing toward is the birth of this child for unto us a child is born which is the next verse after this verse 6 a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders but he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god prince of peace the everlasting father in the government his of his government peace will have no end This is what we're talking about. So what do we take away from these three verses? Well, really what Isaiah is trying to say, listen, it's going to get really bad for you. But don't worry, there's cause for joy. Are you guys in the midst right now, maybe some of you, where it's really bad or frustrating or you've just come through some kind of bad circumstance or situation? Or maybe you're right in the thick of it right now in that deep, dark valley. And you say, God, where are you? Maybe you are. Maybe this is the first holiday without somebody you love. Maybe they've passed away. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're still struggling with addiction. Maybe fill in the blank, whatever your circumstance is. And you wonder, where is my joy? Haven't I suffered enough? And maybe, truly, your suffering isn't due to anything you've done to receive suffering. Maybe somehow you're a victim of certain circumstances that are not of your own making. What are you going to do? Where do you find joy amidst all of this? Everybody else is celebrating Christmas, but you feel dead inside. Here's our key point this morning. When joy seems a distant memory, God's salvation is just a breath away. So let's look at this passage today and see if we can find joy hidden amidst struggle. The first part of this, the result of this ultimate love of God was that the nation of Israel would be enlarged. Now, many of the Jews in that day thought that it would be the nation of Israel, even 700 years after this was written, when Jesus came onto the scene, was born as a baby in a manger in that small town of Bethlehem, they didn't realize that the nation of Israel expanding and growing larger wasn't just of those born of Jewish descent. You see, if you go back again to the first two verses of this chapter, you realize that a light from the region of the Gentiles would come. Now, he would be Jewish by birth, but his light would shine to all the nations of the world. Go back to Genesis chapter 12 with me. There's a guy by the name of Abraham, and no, it's not Lincoln, okay? If you're not familiar with your Bibles, he's considered Father Abraham. I used to sing a song as a kid. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am, and so are, so let's just praise the Lord. Okay. So you know this song, right? This is the Abraham we're talking about. Genesis chapter 12. When you read the first three verses of chapter 12, this is Abraham out in the middle of what would consider considered to be modern day Iran around in that region. And he's called out of there into a land that God will show him. Okay. Where is that land? Well, it's a land to the west of where he lives. A land which would become Israel that borders the Mediterranean Sea. And there's a river that runs through it. Oh, that sounds like a movie. This river, though, would be the River Jordan from Galilee all the way to the Dead Sea. That is the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. And yet Abraham never really got to occupy the land, so to speak. Neither did his sons. But as you go through about four or five, 600 years or more, finally, the nation of Israel would grow, especially while they're in Egypt. And they grow to a tune of about 1.5 to 2 million men, women, and children. So large, in fact, that the Pharaoh of that day and age is getting scared of the people of Israel. He has them under his thumb. They are slaves, but they are so numerous, they uh, they outnumber the Egyptians. And if they ever realize that they're bigger than we are by number, they could take us over. So what is Pharaoh's big plan? To wipe them out. And he does this through genocide, but genocide, actually he does this through infanticide of the Jewish males, by throwing the babies into the Nile river. One baby survives miraculously, by the very power and the provisional hand of God, Moses. You can read his story. I'm not going to go great into detail about that. This nation then grows. I mean, it continues to grow, but under this great oppressiveness of the Egyptian empire until finally the cries of the people are heard by God. And Moses now, a young man, actually an old man, after his story hits, is about 80 years old. How many of you, and I'm not going to (laughs) ask. Let me just ask you this. How many of you who are nearing 80 or at 80 or over 80 think your time is done? I have pastored at three different churches, and the sentiment, not by the vast majority of those in that age range but by several have been like, well, I've put in my time. I've put in my time. It's time for the younger younger generation to step up. And a part of that, I don't disagree with. The younger generations need to step up, but they also need to be empowered. And they also need an extra measure of grace when they mess up and don't do things the way they've always been done. But secondly, that older generation needs to realize that you're not done. If you have breath in your lungs, you still have a ministry in the Lord's kingdom. So Moses is called in the wilderness of Midian after he had left Egypt as a royalty for killing an Egyptian soldier. And he's 80 years old and he sees a bush burning, but it's not consumed by the flames. And so he gets closer and closer to check this site out. And as he does, a voice emanates from the bush. A bit shocking, to say the least. What would you do if a bush talked to you? I've seen it in the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And I think uh, the Three Amigos had another bush that talked, I think. Yeah, did they? Okay, good. i got the right movie. Uh, it's it's got to be one of those sites where you're like, okay, am I hearing things? But this voice says, take off your sandals, Moses. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. Be barefoot in my presence. I don't want the dust of anything you've carried into this place to be carried here. You're on holy ground. What dust have you carried into the presence of God that he says you need to leave that behind? Sorry, that's a different sermon for a different time. The nation grows. They come through the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness. They, after 40 years of stubborn wilderness wandering, end up occupying the land and God's promises to them through the book of Deuteronomy, known as the second law, is given to them as a blueprint on how they are to live life, build the nation, and continue to be faithful to God no matter what. But there's also some warnings there. And the warnings are, I will be with you, but when you leave me, I will depart. That's pretty much the whole gist of the circumstance. And he says, and when I depart, what happens? When God's protection, when God's provision departs, what tends to happen? Bad stuff, right? If God's hand of protection is lifted, then all the enemies who desire to see you dead have no challenges against you, or have no challenges. But Brandon, I've been faithful to God. Things are going, you know, still really bad in my life. I've been faithful. Yes, many of you are and have been. And the situation you're in isn't because of sin in your life, but maybe a testing period to see if your trust is still there. I'm not saying that God is just letting you have it to see if you still got what it takes, but sometimes in certain situations, he may be trying and testing you to see, are you still with me? And so this, this, these verses of joy are given. The nation of Israel is enlarged. But ironically, the nation of Israel is enlarged in a way they wouldn't anticipate and or have ever expected it to enlarge when you look back at Abraham and you see those verses because here's what the promise was to Abraham. You will be a blessing to the nations. And all the nations of the world will be blessed by you. But the sad reality is they failed miserably at it. They enlarged in physical number just by growing, by babies being born over generation after generation. But that wasn't the blessing that God was specifically talking about. He said, I'm going to enlarge this nation. So now Jesus comes onto the scene, the perfect Israelite, the light to the nations, through the line of Abraham and God fulfills his promise through the seed of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations himself because they didn't do it. Instead of condemning them all, God says, okay, I'll do it. And so he's born in Bethlehem to an obscure couple under difficult circumstances and in one of the most crude places to be born, a stable with manure and disgusting smells. This God would enlarge the nation of Israel by the message going to the Gentile nations. And we know the story, if you continue to read through the New Testament, there were church plants all throughout the Mediterranean region. The gospel began to spread because of the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God fulfilled his promise to the people. He also said he would break the yoke of slavery. Break the yoke of slavery. Now this happened some 70 years after exile. And we read the book of Daniel. They are actually in exile. Daniel is captive to this, um, this Babylonian group under King Nebuchadnezzar. But he rises to power among the ranks, so do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they would be in exile for 70 years until the Medo-Persians took over the Babylonian kingdom and then Cyrus would allow the people to go back. So God's promise would break where the yoke of slavery would be broken, the Israelites would be allowed to go back and occupy the region of where Jerusalem and Judea, all of that is. They would begin to repopulate, to grow, refortify the cities. Even Jerusalem, its walls would be built under the leadership of Nehemiah. The temple would be built under Ezra and Zerubbabel. And the places of worship that once were, that had been destroyed, would be places of worship yet again. But God wasn't just talking about breaking the yoke of slavery for the Israelites. He's talking something deeper and bigger as Isaiah writes. How many of you feel enslaved today even though you live in a free nation? How many of you are held captive to your calendars? How many of you are held captive to desires that don't actually equal to what God's desires are for you? How many of you feel captive to a paycheck? How many of you feel captive to the debt that you've incurred? How many of you feel captive to any number of things? See, God was telling us through Isaiah that this yoke of slavery would be broken. And it's all tied into this light that would come from the region of the Gentiles where Naphtali And Zebulun were in the northern area next to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus would be raised in a small town called Nazareth. That's why Jesus is called Jesus the Nazarene. As he would start his ministry, most of his ministry would be done in that region. And the yoke of slavery, not from the Roman Empire that ruled during Jesus' day and age, would be broken, but rather the yoke of the slavery to sin and death. Do you see why many of the religious leaders missed it when Jesus came onto the scene? They kept testing him, trying to trip him up, trying to trick him into saying something so that they could have some kind of charge to get this man killed, or at least in prison. He was gathering a following. He was doing miracles. we we got to shut this down. He's going to ruin our way of life. See, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he ruins your life, but in a good way. Because here's the thing. Many of us don't always live lives the way we should live them. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, he ruins that way of living for you. This is why oftentimes he's rejected. Well, I I can't have any fun if I believe in Jesus. I've got to give up all this stuff. See, that's the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, is to get you to believe that the life of sin in which you live is better than the life of freedom through Christ Jesus. And we live in an upside-down world. This is why the gospel of Christ is countercultural. It's countercultural because the culture is counter to Christ's perfect norm. When you begin to live a life in Christ, the rest of the world looks upside down to you. But when you're living a life of sin, the life of Christ looks upside down. If you're living a life of sin, you have the yoke of slavery on you. You're a sin to whatever controls you. What is it that consumes the most of your time? Is Is it a device in your hands? A game controller, kids, wherever my kids are. Um, what is it? Is it your job? Well, Brandon, I have to work or I'll get fired. No, no, no. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But sometimes we could sacrifice our families, our relationship with Christ, all for a paycheck. Can't we? Well, it's Christmas season. I got to put in a tons of overtime. For what? A gift that will be loved for a second or two and then thrown into the trash heap. Consumerist Christianity is what it is. It's a yoke of slavery. I have nothing against gift giving, but oftentimes during the season of gift giving, we neglect the greatest gift ever given because we're too concerned about the packages under the tree. More than the package that laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Lastly, and I know you guys are getting hungry. <laughs> if you step out in the hallway, there's ham smell wafting down the... Let me talk to you before we get to the next point. Um, I want you to hear some, something from Jesus' own lips about this. I quote this often, but I think it bears repeating again with relation to Isaiah, Isaiah's verse that says he will break the yoke of slavery. Listen to what Jesus says, because this is a fulfillment of that verse. Come to me, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. How many of you desire rest? I woke up this morning, got ready to come in today, and guess what I wanted so bad? A nap. (laughs) I was exhausted. I feel like I stay exhausted. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. And listen to this next verse. Take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? If you're a farmer... Actually, you probably don't even know modern day farmers don't even yoke their oxen anymore. Uh, It is this large wooden beam that has curves on it that sets across the shoulders of either horses or oxen or any number of beasts of burden to pull a plow or a uh, a wagon or any number of things. That yoke distributes the weight of what they're pulling evenly so that it's less of a burden on one beast over the other. Two are better than one. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes says? So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Do you know what that means? He's saying, listen, I'm going to pull with you. You've been been carrying this junk. You want rest? I'm going to break the yoke of slavery on you, but I'm not going to let you off that easy. (laughs) I'm going to give you my yoke. Okay that sounds counterintuitive or counterproductive but but what does he go on to say about his yoke let me teach you he says listen i'm going to pull with you i'm going to i'm going to be in if you if you come to me i can make this a lot easier for you i'm watching you just break under the weight of these burdens I wanna break that from you, and I want you to be able to walk upright. But I also wanna replace what you've been carrying with something that I desire for you to carry, and I'll carry it with you. Because I am humble, and I'm gentle at heart, he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So he's not giving you nothing. He's actually giving you another burden. But this burden that he gives you to bear is one that's desirous to carry. It's not a burden to carry anymore in the way of the world. I'm going to give you a burden for the souls of men and women. I'm going to give you a burden and a desire for the heart of God. I'm going to give you a burden for the things that are good and holy and righteous and no, it's not always going to be easy, but I'm there with you, yoked with you to pull this burden. Lastly, fueling the fire, and this is where I may get in trouble this morning. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms of blood stained that have been bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Israel, as a nation, when they existed, did not know a time, not really, that they weren't trying to be attacked by the Philistines, the Midianites, all these other people. Actually, he mentions Midian back in the back, or in that middle verse there. Do you know what that's a story of, what he's referencing? Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8, where Gideon is called. Do you know the story of Gideon? Some of you do. You might remember the name. Well, Gideon had about 20,000 soldiers israelite soldiers and the midianite army was just continuing to assault and press in on them and cause them a lot of trouble and so now isaiah's referencing what's going to happen as god breaks this yoke of slavery replaces that yoke with peace and freedom listen to listen to the reference there midian so what happened in that whole scenario i think this is such a cool illustration if you remember the story 20,000 soldiers were too many. And so God says, I want you to whittle it down. Whittles it down to 10. He says, still way too many. Finally, the ending result is, (laughs) Gideon is left with 300 soldiers to fight against nearly 40,000 Midianites. You think that's a fair fight? No, definitely not. How many of you felt... Alone, and you have all of these soldiers around you, just pounding you into the ground. Now, and I want you to—God says, "Okay, now you got enough. You got three hundred soldiers, and so here's what I want you to do. i want you to get—I want you to get jars. Wait, what? What? What about swords and shields? No, no, no. Ah, uh-uh. get jars." And then uh, light those jars. You know, get the wicks and the oil and all that. And I want you to light that. But hold on. Get that and get ram's horns. Have you ever heard of ram's horn or the shofar, according to uh, the Hebrew people? Those curled horns. and, And I want each of your men to settle around the perimeter where the Midianites are. I want you to get your jars ready and your horns ready. <laughs> so not swords and shields, right? God, are you sure? Let me get my fleece back out again. D- just double <laughs> check that you're giving me the right information. And so at night, they surround the Midianites, all 300 of them in the midst of this huge encampment of tens of thousands of Midianite soldiers. And at just the right time, they blew the ram's horns, broke open the jars so the light shone and guess what happened? The Midianites got confused. They awoke from their slumber, many of them. And they're trying to get their armor, but they're just, oh, we don't have time to even get our armor on. Let's just grab our swords. And the horns are blowing in perimeter around the, sort of the first surround sound ever. <laughs> and it wasn't bows, all right? And there's, ha ha. So it <laughs> And, and all of this commotion is going on, what do the Midianites start doing? They start killing each other. How many of you go into battle like this? When I mean, you should be going into battle like this. You're going to lose most, if not all, of the battles like this as a believer in Christ. Why do you think Martin Luther King Jr.'s message was so much more powerful than those who are riding on the streets, looting the stores, burning down buildings? Why do you think this is more powerful than this? Because in God's kingdom, this does not exist. Now, what are you saying, Brandon? This is where I said this would get me in trouble. It says, when this Messiah, this child comes onto the scene, all the implements of warfare will be burned. The citizen of God's kingdom is a part of an army, but that army has no offensive weapons except one If we read Ephesians chapter 6, and the armor of God, what is the one offensive weapon the child of God, the citizen of God's kingdom, has? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's it. And the Word of God is truth, it's love, it's conviction, it's forgiveness, it's grace. But sometimes we wield it, not like a two-edged sword, but a blood instrument to beat people up with. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he doesn't go around with a sword attacking. He doesn't raise up an earthly army. He becomes like a sheep who was led to the slaughter. Even tells Peter, when he's arrested that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, one of the temple guards. And Jesus puts that ear back on and heals the man and says, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. It shouldn't be this way with you guys. Well, what about, what about the wars of our day and age, Brandon. It's a whole different topic for a whole different time. But hear me in this. The weapons of warfare for the believer in Christ is prayer, the word of God, and the love of God. And we leave the rest up to God. We have our light in a jar that we let all people see. And we blow the ram's horn to remind people the kingdom of which we are a part of is a powerful and mighty kingdom of God. And we usher in His presence wherever we go, not a system of violence. We are our, our followers of Christ, not followers of the President of the United States of America, not followers of Putin. That sounds really weird. I think it's cool. Putin, what a name for a dictator. He's got a bad gas problem. Um, Sorry. Any other dictator across the face of this globe, no matter the greatest leader or the worst dictator, we serve a God who loves, who cares, who is willing to die for us. And we too must be willing to die for one another. The greatest love a man has for each other is that he would lay down his life for his friends. Yes? Okay. I'm going to go ahead and call our worship team to come forward. As I give you this last closing thought. it said that Messina, one of Napoleon's generals suddenly appeared with 18,000 men before an Austrian town, which, no one, which which had no means of defense. Napoleon was a skilled practitioner of war. If you could say anything positive about the guy, he was amazingly skilled in warfare. And so these 18,000 men came before this Austrian town. They were planning to take it over. They had no other means of defense, and so this would have been an easy thing for Napoleon's army. The town council nearly decided to surrender when the old dean of the church in town reminded them that it was Easter, and he begged them to hold services as usual and to leave the trouble in God's hands. So that morning they awoke, and instead of surrendering, they decided to have at least one last service, honoring their risen Lord and Savior. The French, after hearing the church bells ringing, joyfully concluded that the Austrian army had come to relieve the place and quickly broke camp. And before the bells ceased ringing, all the Frenchmen and Napoleon's 18,000 troop army had vanished. The incident has often been duplicated in individual lives. They have rung the joy bells in the face of pain and sickness and poverty and fear and loneliness and other trials. The joy bells have conquered. Speedily, the foal has slunk away. And speedily, the bell ringers have found themselves in the possession of the field. For no enemy is quite as strong as faith accompanied by good cheer. Joy isn't contingent upon your circumstances. Joy, unspeakable and full of glory, only comes from a life fully surrendered to God who helps us to weather whatever circumstance and situation we are in. When joy seems a distant dream or memory, God's salvation is a breath away. Do you have the trust you necessarily need to lean into God when things are going wrong? He's your only hope. And he's the means by which you can weather the storms of life with peace, but also with joy. If you're struggling this morning and you don't know where to go, where to turn, this is a rough season for you every year because Christmas isn't joyful to you, but rather is remembrances of pain from times past. Let this be a year of joy for you to where God can redeem this season in your life if you're fighting battles that aren't yours to fight or if you're in the thick of a battle and you can't find a way out use the best weapons of any warrior of God pray seek his face he will never forsake you I promise you that These altars are always open up here. If you want to be prayed with this morning because you just don't know the words to pray or how to get beyond this hurdle that you're facing, come to my right, your left. Somebody on our prayer team will come and pray with you. If you just want to come and reconcile with God on your own and lay your burdens down here and take up his yoke, which is good and easy and light, come to my left, your right. But please don't leave this morning. I say this every, every week. Please don't leave this morning without being reconciled to a God who is acquainted with your griefs and sorrows and one who has given all for you and desires for you to give all to him in complete surrender. Heavenly Father, in this place, we know you're here. <laughs> for where two or more gather in your name we know you've promised to be there. And God, we not only honor your presence by worship and reading of the word, but we honor your presence by a fully surrendered life. And there may be some in this place this morning, heavenly Father, that don't know you or they're on the on this teetering line of whether or not to give up their lives for your sake. Or maybe they are children of God, but they find themselves in the heat of the battle and they don't know where to turn. Yes, they turn to you, but they're still struggling with circumstances. Remind them, all of them, that you are love, you are good, you are holy, you are righteous, and that there's nothing that in you they cannot overcome. Remind us, The words of Christ, in this world you will help troubles of any kind, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let that be our mantra as well as we live into this relationship with your Son. Release burdens today, Father. Break the yoke of slavery in this place. Redeem what's been lost, and give us joy unspeakable and full of glory. In Jesus' name.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.